so this conference is about Aquinas is summa contra gentiles in the contemporary in a contemporary context and the specific context I will address in my talk is the conversation between Thomism and so-called theistic personalism. Theistic personalists claim that God's personal nature cannot be reconciled with some of the core tenets of classical theism, in particular the doctrines of divine immutability, timelessness and simplicity. For personalists, God is changeable and metaphysically composed. He has attributes such as omnipotence and omniscience that are distinct from each other and from God himself. Notable personalists within analytic philosophy are people like Alvin Plantinga, Richard Swinburne and William Lane Craig. Within theology, personalistic views come to expression in the long-standing tendency to contrast a biblical dynamic understanding of God with a Hellenistic, allegedly static conception, as well as in the tendency to historicize God's being along Hegelian lines. Karl Barth, Eberhard Jüngel, Jürgen Moltmann and many other significant modern theologians uh, have rejected core elements of classical theism, such as God's immutability and impossibility. Today, many, perhaps most theologians, regard the idea that God suffers alongside his creation as almost axiomatic, and this view entails that God can change. In the Summa Contra Gentiles, Book 1, Aquinas attempts to build a solid philosophical case for classical theism. His starting point is two Aristotelian arguments from motion presented in chapter 13, whereby he claims to establish that there is an immutable first mover. Taking himself to have proved this claim, Aquinas then systematically unfolds the other doctrines of classical theism, using divine immutability as a key premise. In chapter 14, Aquinas describes his method, quote, in order to proceed by the way of remotion about knowledge of God, let us take as a principle that which is already manifest but what we have said above, namely that God is altogether unchangeable. Quod Deus sit omnino immobilis. Prima facie, this seems to be a good method. If divine changelessness can be proved at the outset, then we have a very potent premise from which the whole package of classical theism can subsequently be derived. Given divine immutability, it readily follows that God lacks beginning and end, and perhaps also that God is eternal in the sense of being altogether timeless. Uh, at the very least, it follows that God lacks passive potentiality since change is the actualization of some potential. And from the lack of potentiality, it follows that God is pure act. And from this, it follows that he lacks any kind of composition whatsoever. So he's altogether simple. This is roughly how Aquinas argues in the Summa Contra Gentiles book one. The success of Aquinas's case for classical theism in this work depends, however, on whether the crucial premise of divine immutability can be proved without reliance on any of the other divine attributes that I have just mentioned. Theistic personalists claim that it cannot and that the controversial divine attributes of classical theism can only be proved in a circular way, relying on one attribute, for example, divine simplicity, in order to prove another, for example, divine immutability and vice versa. 
In this talk, I will try to show that this accusation by theistic personalists is false and that divine immutability can be demonstrated independently of other controversial divine attributes. And I will not address the question that Professor Haldane uh, addressed whether we can demonstrate anything at all, but we'll, we can discuss that later. Divine immutability can hence function as a gateway to the other doctrines of classical theism, if this is correct, in the way that Aquinas suggests. And in what, fol what follows, I will do two main things. First, I will evaluate Aquinas' case for divine changelessness in the Summa Contra Gentiles 1, taking into consideration the kind of critique and concerns that theistic personalists in the analytic tradition bring to the table. Second, I will suggest an alternative Thomistic way of arguing for divine changelessness, a way that perhaps could be dialectically effective in the debate between Thomism and personalism. Okay, in chapter 13, Aquinas presents five arguments for God's existence. Two of them are, as I said, Aristotelian arguments from motion that conclude with an immutable or unchangeable first mover. And my purpose here is not to analyze these arguments in detail. Instead, I will take a bird's eye view of arguments from motion in general in order to highlight the problem that many commentators see with them. I will then point to a couple of possible solutions to this problem. Let us begin by looking at the general structure of Aquinas' first Aristotelian argument in chapter 13. And this is the argument that Norman Kretzmann calls G1 in his influential book about the Summa. And G1 is basically uh, a, a more elaborated version of the first way in Summa Theologia. These are the premises. Something is in motion, and by motion, Aquinas means change. Whatever is in motion is changed moved by another. And this premise entails that nothing is moved by itself, strictly speaking. What we normally refer to as cases of self-movement, for example, when an animal moves around, are in reality cases of one part moving another part. Premise three, an essentially ordered series of movers does not regress infinitely. And this is because one member of such a series can only move the next member as long as it is itself moved by the foregoing member. In such a series, there must be a first member that injects causal power into the series, so to speak. And yesterday we heard Gavin Kerr exemplified an essentially ordered series with the golf players moving his club. But where I live in the north of Sweden, the golf season is very short. So I prefer an example with a guy who shovels snow. So the guy moves his hands, which in turn move the shovel, which moves the snow. If the guy dies from a heart attack, which can easily happen, then the shovel and the snow will stop moving as well. An essentially ordered series of movers such as this cannot go on indefinitely, but must have a first member, the snow shoveler in this case. And the conclusion of this argument is that there is a first immovable mover, primum movens immobile. I will refer to this general structure as the argument from motion. And in my view, the three premises can all be successfully defended, although I cannot justify this claim here. What I want to focus on in the present context is whether the immutability of the first mover follows from the premises. Suppose that we grant that all, all three premises are true. 
Then for any series of essentially ordered movers, there must be a first mover that is not dependent on anything else for its power to move. The first mover, in other words, must be able to move without being caused to do so. Furthermore, since we have granted that premise two is true, it follows that nothing can move itself in the strict sense. So the first mover cannot move itself, neither directly nor indirectly. This means that the first mover cannot start a chain of movers that eventually circles back and moves the first mover itself accidentally, since that would be a form of indirect self-movement on the part of the first mover, which violates premise two. Since all power to move ultimately comes from the first mover, it might seem that the first mover cannot be moved at all, that it is wholly unchangeable. However, and this is the problem, there seems to be nothing in this argument that excludes there being another mover that is first in a different chain of movers. The uniqueness of the first mover has not been proved. This means that our first mover could possibly be accidentally moved by a chain of movers that starts with another first mover in this way. This means that the argument seems to be invalid as it stands. Prima facie, at least, it does not follow from the premises that the first mover is totally immovable, that is unchangeable or immutable. It does not even follow that it is actually unchanged. All that seems to follow is that there must be one or several things that can move other things in virtue of their own underived causal power. Scott MacDonald responds to this problem by saying that the argument from motion is parasitic on some other theistic argument. Although the argument from motion cannot by itself yield a totally immovable mover, it can do so if combined with a third way or some other contingency argument, which proves the existence of a being that is necessary of itself. I will not have time to discuss MacDonald's view here, but it is at least not obvious that appeal to the third way solves the present problem. Perhaps a necessary being can also be mutable as theistic personalists usually claim. However, many Thomists claim that the argument from motion, if rightly understood, is more potent than MacDonald thinks, and certainly more potent than my brief presentation here has indicated. In order to see the argument's true power, we must attend more closely to the metaphysics of potency and act. There are different schools of metaphysical or existential interpretations of the argument from motion, and in the present context, I will have to limit my discussion to what I take to be a very convincing recent example of this approach. Edward Faser reminds us that motion or change for Aquinas involves the actualization of a potency. In order to fully explain the occurrence in the world of motion or change in a narrow sense, namely local motion, uh, qualitative change and quantitative change, it must also be explained why the substances that change exist, how their potential for existence gets actualized. Since there cannot be an infinite regress of actualized actualizers, as Faser calls them, things that get their own existence actualized by something else, we must at some point arrive at an unactualized actualizer, some, something that is capable of actualizing the potential for existence of other things without first having to have its own potential for existence actualized. According to Faser, only a being that is wholly actual, actus purus, is capable of ending such a regress of actualized actualizers. Therefore, if the occurrence of change in the world, that is, the actualization of any potential, 
is to be explained. A purely actual being must exist. Such a being, since it is pure actuality, is necessarily unique and by definition has no potentiality. It is hence wholly immovable, omnino immobilis. There is one step in Facer's argumentation that needs critical attention, however, namely his move from the claim that an unactualized actualizer exists to the claim that a purely actual actualizer exists. I agree with Facer that the first way and argument G1 in Summa Contra Gentiles demonstrate the existence of an actualized actualizer, since only such a being can end the regress of actualized actualizers. An unactualized actualizer, however, is simply a being that exists without the cause of its existence. What theistic personalists would call a necessary being, something that exists of its own power and hence cannot fail to exist. It is unclear, however, why such a being could not have some potentiality and hence be accidentally changeable. Although Facer addresses this problem and reasons about it, he seems to view the step from claim one to two here as relatively uncontroversial. In a same, similar vein, Joseph Owens, interpreting actuality as existence, writes, can the actuality of the primary mover be anything other than existence itself? Will it not have to be existence that is not brought into actuality by anything else? Will it not be existence that is there of itself? For Owens, an unactualized actualizer or primary mover can easily, it seems, be identified with, quote, pure existential actuality, unquote. Although I think that both Facer and Owens are right in their conclusions, namely that an unactualized actualizer or first mover must be pure actuality, I think they underestimate the controversial status of this claim and the amount of argumentation that is needed to demonstrate it. Theistic personalists usually accept that God is an unactualized actualizer in the sense of a being that does, does not need to have its potential for existence actualized since it exists necessarily of itself. So they accept claim one here. However, they nevertheless reject claim two. This indicates that it is not immediately self-evident that an unactualized actualizer is identical to pure actuality. Some additional argumentation is needed. And I will now suggest what I take to, to be the most natural Thomistic way to bridge the gap between claim one and claim two. And from now on, I will stop using the term unactualized actualizer and inst instead talk about first mover. It's simpler to pronunciate. Suppose that we have a first mover and that it has some potentiality. This entails that there is a distinction between the first mover and its actuality. Since the first mover is partly constituted by something that is not actuality, namely potentiality. The first mover's actuality, in other words, is not identical to its essence. In order to demonstrate that this cannot be the case and that the first mover's actuality must be identical to its essence, we need the following causal principle, which we find in Aquinas. Things in themselves different cannot unite unless something causes them to unite. Given this principle, we can reason as follows. If the first mover's actuality is something distinct or different from the first mover itself or its essence, there must be a cause that unites them according to our causal principle. In other words, there must be a cause that gives the first mover whatever actuality it has. 
But this cause cannot be the first mover itself, since it cannot possibly cause anything unless it already has some actuality. However, the cause of its actuality cannot be something external to the first mover either, since that would mean that the first mover is dependent for its actuality on something else, which means that the first mover is not, contrary to hypothesis, the first mover or unactualized actualizer after all. Hence, the assumption that the first mover is distinct from its own actuality contradicts the causal principle. And this means that the first mover cannot be distinct from its actuality. It must simply be actuality or pure act. We can summarize this argument in the following way. If the first mover is not pure act, there is a distinction or difference between it and its actuality. Things in themselves different cannot unite unless something causes them to unite. But there can be no cause that unites the first mover and its actuality, as we have seen. Hence, there can be no distinction or difference between it and its actuality. So the first mover must be pure act. And this argument, of course, follows Aquinas' reasoning in the Ente et Essentia, where he shows that there must be something whose essence is identical to existence itself. Existence and actuality are closely related concepts, of course. And if we substitute existence for actuality in the above argument, what we have is a version of the so-called existential argument from the Ente et Essentia. Following Etienne Gilson and Owens, and others, many Thomists see the argument from motion and indeed all the five ways as particular applications of Aquinas' metaphysical reasoning about essence and existence in the Ente et Essentia, as we heard yesterday from, from Gavin. If this view is correct, we might say that the argument I suggested here, bridge argument one, is an implicit part of the argument from motion itself. For clarity, however, I think it should be spelt out as a separate argumentative step that requires appeal to a specific causal principle, a different causal principle than that which is uh, included in the argument from motion, namely the principle stated here in premise two. Unfortunately, few, if any, theistic personalists would accept this causal principle, the principle in premise two. Why not? Well, since theistic personalists reject the doctrine of divine simplicity, they assume that God has some properties that are non-identical to God himself, but without which he would not exist. For example, his omniscience and omnipotence. Analytic philosophers call properties of this kind essential properties, thereby using this term in a different sense than Thomists normally use it. Now, Personalists accept that God could not have caused his own essential properties, since he could not exist without them. They also accept that no external cause could be responsible for those properties, since that would mean that God's existence per impossibile would depend on an external cause. So what's the explanation then of the fact that God has the essential properties that he has, according to personalists? Most personalists, I think, would say that there need not be any explanation of this fact, since God possesses his essential properties by necessity, and necessary facts do not require an explanation. Hence, personalists will reject Aquinas' causal principle in premise two, the claim that things in themselves different cannot unite unless something causes them to unite. 
Personalists will hold that this principle is only true of things or properties that are contingently united in a thing. Since God's essential properties necessarily belong to God, they can be united in God, so to speak, without a cause. This view allows personalists to claim that there need not be any cause of God's actuality or existence, despite the fact that God, according to their view, is not identical to pure actuality or to existence itself. The fact that God exists is a necessary fact and hence in no need of further explanation. This reasoning by theistic personalists can be seen as an appeal to brute, inscrutable necessities, and Aquinas' view of the matter is undoubtedly more intellectually satisfying. For Aquinas, God's necessary existence is not an inscrutable necessity, but is explained by the fact that God and existence are identical. Nevertheless, in the context of the conversation between Thomists and theistic personalists, it cannot be expected that personalists should accept the principle, Aquinas' causal principle, that flatly contradicts their basic conception of God and requires them to immediately accept divine simplicity and the identity of essence and existence in God. For the purpose of convincing theistic personalists of divine immutability, we therefore need another argument that bridges the gap between an unactualized actualizer or a necessary being and a being that lacks all potentiality and which is therefore purely actual. In what follows, I will suggest such an argument. And this argument that I will suggest can be seen as an explication of the following remarks by Aquinas in Summa Contra Gentiles. Quote, that which of itself must necessarily exist can in no way have possible existence, since whatever of itself must necessarily exist has no cause, whereas whatever has possible existence has a cause. Now God in himself must necessarily exist. Therefore, he can in no way have possible existence. Therefore, no potency is to be found in his substance. When Aquinas says that a necessary being can in no way have possible existence, I take him to mean that such a being cannot have any contingent features or properties. It must be necessary through and through. If the necessary being would have some contingent property, then that property must have a cause, and Aquinas claims that it cannot have a cause because the necessary being is, as such, uncaused. However, a theistic personalist might grant that any contingent property that the necessary being has requires a cause, but he could claim that the cause could be the necessary being itself. Remember that we cannot, in the present context, presuppose the doctrine of divine simplicity, so we must grant the possibility that the necessary being is metaphysically composed, which means that one aspect of it could cause changes in another aspect, presumably. Suppose, for example, that the necessary being is some kind of mind and has free will, then perhaps it could cause itself to have a contingent property in the form of a new particular thought. Moreover, for all we know at this stage, there could be several necessary beings that could cause changes in each other. Hence, argues the theistic personalist, we have no reason to believe that the necessary being must be immutable. In what follows, I will attempt to show why the alleged possibilities pointed out by the theistic personalist do not in fact exist. Besides the premise that the necessary being exists, a claim that theistic personalists accept, my argument also needs a causal principle that theistic personalists could accept. 
I will therefore work with the following principle, which is perhaps more accurately called a principle of sufficient reason and which is restricted to contingent facts. And this is the principle. For any object O and any contingent positive features F that O has or has had, the fact that O has or has had F has a causal explanation. And I don't have time to defend this principle here, but I believe that Alexander Proust has convincingly defended a much stronger principle in his magisterial book about the principle of sufficient reason, namely the claim that every contingent proposition has an explanation. For the sake of simplicity, I will hereafter state my principle of sufficient reason in the following abbreviated way, namely, Every contingent feature fact has a causal explanation. And by a contingent feature fact, I mean a fact to the effect that a thing has or at some point had a certain contingent feature or features. So the abbreviated formulation is to be understood as meaning exactly the same thing as the more complicated formulation. Namely, that there is a causal explanation of why a thing has or has had the contingent features it has or has had. So I will first give now an informal presentation of the argument and then give a, a more formal summary. So we have a necessary being. Suppose that the necessary being is changeable or mutable. Then it follows that it has some potency. And I will here talk about the necessary being's potencies as features of the necessary being. Instead of potencies, we could equally well speak of dispositions. And dispositions are, according to a common view among analytic philosophers, uh, real features of things. Perhaps dispositions or potencies are, as some would claim, reducible to other more basic features or states. But those base, more basic features or states must then, like dispositions or potencies, be contingent, as I will shortly argue. Now, the purported fact that the necessary being has some potencies could be a necessary fact. Perhaps everything that exists has some potency. However, even though it may be a necessary fact that the necessary being has some potencies or other, it cannot be a necessary fact that it has this or that particular potency. For example, that the necessary being is potentially F, where F is a specific property that the necessary being lacks but could possibly have. To say that the necessary being necessarily is potentially F is incoherent since a potency by definition can be reduced to actuality. And when a passive potency is reduced to actuality, it no longer exists. So having some particular potency cannot be a necessary feature of the necessary being, a feature that it could not fail to have. Hence, any potency that the necessary being has is a contingent feature. Now, our principle of sufficient reason dictates that every contingent feature fact has a causal explanation. As I said earlier, prima facie, it seems possible for the necessary being to cause itself to have some contingent features. So let us assume that the necessary being itself is the cause that explains why it has some particular potency. A cause, however, actualizes a potency. This is what causation is. This means that the causal explanation of why the necessary being has some particular potency at time t presupposes that the necessary being already had some other potency at some earlier time, say t minus 1. 
If the necessary being was not in some state of potentiality at t minus 1, it could not have caused itself to be in a different state of potentiality at time t, since causation is the actualization of a potential. However, this means that any causal explanation of why the necessary being has some particular potency presupposes that the necessary being at an earlier time already had some other potency, which in turn must be causally explained since it is contingent, which explanation in turn presupposes an even earlier potency and so on. Since the necessary being has always existed, this is of course in the nature of a necessary being, the regress of previous states of potentiality will be infinite, so we will never reach a first such state. And we can summarize this reasoning in the following way. If the necessary being NB is changeable, it has some particular potency. A particular potency is a contingent feature. The principle of sufficient reason says that every contingent feature fact has a cause. Now, if something causes the necessary being to have some particular potency P, then it must previously have been in some other state of potency P1, since causation is the actualization of a potency. If something causes the necessary being to have potency P1, then NB must previously have been in some other state of potency P2 and so on. Hence, if the necessary being is changeable, it is the subject of an infinite regress of previous states of potency. Is an infinite regress of this kind a problem for those who believe in a changeable God, a God with potency? It could be argued with David Hume that it is not. Every member of the infinite regress chain is explained in terms of a previous member and so on to infinity. And since every member is explained, there is nothing more in need of explanation. However, Pache Hume, there is at least one more fact in need of explanation, namely why the infinite chain has the members it has rather than some other members or kind of members. An analogy can make this clear. Suppose we have an infinite chain of chickens and eggs that have caused each other since eternity. Hume would say that every chicken is explained by a previous egg and every egg by a previous chicken, and there is nothing more to explain. Surely, however, there is at least one big fact left unexplained by Hume. Why does the chain consist of chickens and eggs rather than, say, by humans begetting each other from eternity. It seems then that something important remains to be explained. I will now apply this insight to the problem at hand and try to show that an infinite regress of contingent states of potentiality in the necessary being is not self-explanatory and violates the principle of sufficient reason, the claim that every contingent feature fact has a causal explanation. In other words, there's a causal explanation of why a thing has or has had the contingent features it has or has had. Now consider what I will call the big contingent feature fact, which is the fact that the necessary being has or has had those very contingent features that it has or has ever had. All the potencies that the necessary being has or has had are, as we have seen, contingent features, and they are therefore included in the big contingent feature fact. This big fact, moreover, is itself, itself a contingent fact, 
because if the necessary being had failed to have even one of the contingent features that it has had throughout its infinite history, then the big contingent feature fact would not have obtained. In other words, it would not have been true that the necessary being has had all those contingent features that it has had. Against this background, we can reason as follows. And now you see that I start with very small letters and very high up on the page. So you understand that this is going to be a long argument. So uh, just buckle up here. Uh, if the necessary being is changeable, then it has some particular potency or potencies. Any potency that the necessary being has is a contingent feature of it. The big contingent feature fact, the fact that the necessary being has or had those very contingent features that it has or has ever had, has a causal explanation as our principle of sufficient reason dictates. A causal explanation of the big contingent feature fact presuppose, cannot presuppose any of the features included in the big contingent feature fact itself on pain of being viciously circular. And this follows from the fact that all features included in the big fact are contingent, and so none of them is self-explanatory. To assume the existence of any contingent part of the big fact when trying to explain the big fact would be to assume something that must be explained, and hence to beg the question. Any causal explanation of the necessary being's potencies presupposes some prior potency which the explanation does not account for. And this is because causation is the actualization of a potency that must pre-exist the event of causation. Every potency that the necessary being has or has ever had is a contingent feature of it and therefore included in the big contingent feature fact. Hence, any causal explanation of the big contingent feature fact is viciously circular or question begging. And this is because any causal explanation presupposes some prior potency, which the explanation does not account for, but which is a contingent feature and therefore included in the big contingent feature fact. Hence, there is no causal explanation of the big contingent feature fact. And this is because a circular or question begging ex explanation is no explanation at all. But if there is no explanation, then premise two is violated, and this means that the assumption that the necessary being is changeable leads to an absurdity. So it cannot be the case that it is changeable. So the necessary being is not changeable. It is wholly unchangeable. And this argument might seem complicated. Basically, however, it merely applies my previous reasoning about chickens and eggs to the infinite regress of potencies in the necessary being. What is the explanation of the big chickens and egg fact that chickens and eggs have generated each other since eternity? Just saying that each chicken was caused by a previous egg and vice versa from eternity does not explain why the infinite chain consists of chickens and eggs in particular. And it's the same with the big contingent feature fact about the necessary being. Although the states of potentiality that make up the infinite regress in the necessary being do not cause each other like the chickens and eggs do, they still condition each other since every new potency can only come about given a previous potency. 
Moreover, the nature of the new potency is at least in part determined by the nature of the previous potency, since the new potency is the result of the actualization of the previous potency by some cause, for example, the necessary being itself. Hence, the question we asked about the infinite regress of chickens and eggs must also be asked about the infinite regress of states of potentiality in the necessary being. Why, why has the necessary being been in this infinite set of states rather than some other infinite set? Just saying that each particular state of potency can be explained in terms of a previous state does not answer this question. When it comes to non-necessary or mundane beings, they have a cause of their existence and the contingent features that they display throughout their finite histories, such as their potencies, can ultimately be explained by reference to the cause or causes that brought them into being. However, a necessary being has no cause of its existence. If it has potencies or other contingent features, those must be explained by reference to some cause that modifies or changes something that is always already there. God could, of course, create potencies and other contingent features ex nihilo. But if he is to make such features inhere in himself, he will have to be the object of his own causal activity. And this presupposes that he already is in potency. And this makes it impossible to causally account for all of God's potencies if he has any. Yet potencies are contingent and must be causally accounted for. It follows that the idea that God or a necessary being has potency must be rejected as irrational. A necessary being is, in other words, necessarily immutable, as Aquinas points out. Okay. Summing up, in this presentation I have, in conversation with the theistic personalism, paid critical attention to a controversial step in Aquinas' arguments from motion, namely his identification of the first mover with pure actuality, or actus purus. I have suggested two bridge arguments that can potentially justify this identification, and the first one was this. And perhaps this argument can be seen as an implicit part of the argument from motion itself. However, in the contemporary context, I think it should be made explicit as a separate argumentative step. The drawback with this argument is that nobody who is suspicious of the doctrine of divine simplicity will accept premise two, Aquinas' causal principle. Premise two entails that everything that is not wholly simple must have a cause. But God obviously cannot have a cause, so accepting the prim premise means accepting that God is wholly simple. Bridge argument one therefore demonstrates divine immutability in a way that implicitly presupposes divine simplicity, or at least a premise that more or less directly entails divine simplicity together with the belief that God exists. In the interest of establishing divine immutability independently of divine simplicity, I therefore suggested another bridge argument, and this was the, the complicated one. Uh, I see this argument as an elaboration of the remarks by Aquinas that I quoted earlier. And this argument argues from the existence of a necessary being to the existence of an immutable being, a being without potency. The existence of a necessary being is a premise that Thomists and theistic personalists both accept. 
and it can be established either by some contingency argument. For example, there is a very neat contingency argument in Summa Contra Gentiles chapter 15. Or it could be established by an appropriate version of the argument from motion interpreted along existentialist lines. The principle of su sufficient reason that this bridge argument requires should also be acceptable to theistic personalists. And this argument might hence be dialectically helpful for the Thomistic side in the ongoing debate between Thomism and theistic personalism. Of course, this is just the first stab at such an argument and we'll see if, if, it, if it can succeed or something like this argument. Okay, I think I will end there. Thank you very much for your attention. Hi, Mats. Um, thanks very much for that. That was really good. And I, I just have had a lot of thoughts, you know, as you can imagine, about what you were saying and, uh, you know, a, a lot of things that I could ask you about it. But I suppose what I would like to ask, it's a question of strategy as to how to engage with theistic personalists. Because I think we can do what, what you did there and we can meet the theistic personalists on a common ground and still show the veracity of Thomas's demonstrations. Um, and I think that's what Fieser tries to do as well. But the unfortunate thing is, I, I think the drawback here is that Thomas articulates his proofs of God from a metaphysical vision of things, which the theistic personalists just don't share. And to my mind, it would be it would be better strategically. It would be better to go, go from the ground up and start with the most basic of metaphysical principles and build up the metaphysics from there, the way Thomas does in Deinte, um, rather than try to find a, a common ground later down the line. Because it seems to me that the theistic personalists, their notions of necessity, possibility, even causality, just don't line up neatly with what um, Thomas would hold about those things, for instance, with necessity, Thomas holds that they're created, necessary creatures such as the angels, the heavenly bodies, even the human soul. And theistic personalists, um, Plantinga, um, possible worlds, uh, that uh, to, to, to be necessary or have a necessary property is to, to possess that property in all possible worlds in which one exists. Um, that doesn't make any sense to Thomas or to a Thomist. Um, and I, th I think a Thomist would have to reject that. So. It just seems to me that there's two completely different frameworks and we need to kind of engage with each other at a much more sort of fundamental ground level rather than at the, the, the later level of the arguments for God's existence. So I'm wondering what you think about that. Yeah, thank you. This is, this is very interesting and, and I wish we can continue to discuss this later too. Just a comment on the thing you addressed last here about the, the view of what a necessary being is. I think I think that you're of course right that for Aquinas a necessary being is is uh, just a being that that has no no beginning and is incorruptible. But then Aquinas also has the concept of a necessary a being that is necessary of itself, and I think that that's really that 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 concept is is very similar to I would say what theistic personalists say uh, think of as a necessary being. A being that is necessary of itself for Th Thomas is a being. I, I would I would say, and and maybe we disagree here then. But I would say that for for Thomas, a, a, a being that is necessary of itself is a being that exists in all possible worlds. Even though I know that Thomas don't doesn't talk in that way, and Thomists 
uh, usually don't like to talk in that way. But but I, I th still think, and it would be interesting to hear your reaction to that if we have time. I, um, yeah, I would disagree with that, but maybe we could talk about that later. Okay. Let, let, let somebody else ask a question. Sure. Um, we have our next question is from Father Zoll. Um, go ahead, Father Zoll. Okay, so first of all, thank you very much for this excellent talk, very uh, thought provoking. Um, well, I have a question. Um, maybe I'm just, uh, it's just maybe just a minor issue. Maybe I'm just confused about that. But um, I think you said two things. And um, I'm not clear if I understand that, or if you can elaborate on that. So first of all, you say that causation is your actualization of a potency. Yeah. And then you say that A causes B to have a potency F. So um, I don't really see how can A cause B to have F is if F is nothing actual. I mean, a thing has the potencies it has in virtue of its actual properties, of course. So in order, in order to cause something to have a certain potency, you have to, you have to, you have to arrange its actual properties in some way. Um, so, so I mean, you can say that by by causing a certain thing to have certain actualities, you thereby also give it the, the potencies that come with these actualities, so to speak. So a thing has its potencies in virtue of its actualities, of its actual properties. So it's a bit elliptical maybe to say that you cause a potency, but you can just rephrase it and say that, well, what I mean is that by uh, changing an object in some way, changing its actualities, you thereby uh, give it uh, a, a new potency too. But that presupposes that it already was in potency to 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 being changed in this mm -hmm. in this way. I don't know if this clarifies what yeah. you're wondering about. Yeah, I think that's a good response. Maybe Jen, just maybe in the bridge argument, uh, just to make sure that. Uh, if someone is nibbling about that, maybe you have to make sure that uh, to, to be clear what is exactly caused and, and maybe so potency is a kind of indirectly caused or, or so yeah by means of something else which is comes to interactuality uh, by, by something else. Oh, that's a very good point. Thank you for yeah, pointing so that out. Maybe just uh, uh, to, that, that needs to be addressed if you reformulate the, uh, the argument. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, um, our next question is from Jonathan from Cornell. Go ahead, Jonathan. Yeah, hi, thanks uh, for a very uh, fascinating and uh, uh, insightful lecture. I wanted to ask about the application of this to uh, physical systems. At the quantum level, we know that systems exhibit motions that um, are entirely to do with the uncertainty principle. Uh, motions that can't be measured, but they have um, uh, macroscopic determined effects like degeneracy pressure and dense matter, for example, which comes entirely from the uncertainty principle. So this seems like uh, uh, something that is causing something else, but doesn't itself really have a cause. It's a causeless cause. What is the flaw in that argument? Or is that in fact a, a way around, let's say, step three in your big contingent feature fact argument? Yeah, thank you. It's a good question. I, I, I would say that uh, to provide a cause or, or a causal explanation of something, uh, 
does not necessarily mean to provide something that entails what is to be explained. So the explanans does not need to entail the explanandum. And so if you have some, some for example, some quantum event that is indeterministic, you can, you can still say that, well, there are there is an explanation, a causal explanation of this event, even though it's not a deterministic explanation. So, it, so the expl explanance does not entail uh, the, the event, but it still explains it. For example, we can, I mean, I mean if you have a, a case like uh, lung, uh, smoking causes lung ca cancer, then you can say that, well, you can explain why somebody got lung ca cancer by uh, by referring to the fact that he's a smoker, even though being a smoker does not entail getting lung cancer. So I suppose this, this, this kind of reasoning could maybe, maybe uh, be helpful when addressing this kind of objections that you, you're referring to. I don't know if that was answer to your question. I have to think about that. I'm not sure that I, I would have chosen that as the best analogy, but, but let me think about it. Thank you. Okay, Professor, uh, we have a question from Jose in Portugal, but I'm going to read it out. My question will be surrounding the question of creation. So by one side, creation is understood as a free act by God, and that is certainly Aquinas' view. God could have not created anything whatsoever so that nothing would exist now, apart from God himself, obviously. And so you have so aptly argued in God there is any potency, God is ontologically simple, and that is the ground of his necessity and immutability. So what I would like to know is how we can make these two affirmations consistent. Which argument or arguments you have found successful in answering this problem? Okay, let's see. I, I don't know if I get the question. Let me let me let me suggest how 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 or let me say how I perceive this question. So you you wonder how you can reconcile uh, the fact that even though God is ontologically simple and therefore he is identical in all possible worlds, he still creates only in some possible worlds because it, it's 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 possible for God not to create. How you can reconcile is, is, is the question how this can be reconciled with some kind of principle of sufficient reason or principle of explanation? I you no, know, Matt, Matt, I think I take him to be arguing that it's this. I think it's, I think he's posing the standard objection, which is an important one, of course. If God freely and contingently decides to create the world, how is it that God is still simple and immutable? since it would seem that he can't be simple and immutable and yet make an elective decision to do X versus Y, which is exactly what he must do if he creates the world freely. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And we have a, we have a Thomistic seminar in, in Scandinavia where we have discussed this question almost every, <laughs> at every meeting because it's, I, I agree that this, this, is a very, this is a very challenging uh, question. And uh, I, th I think that what we have to say is something like the, the, the traditional uh, Thomistic solution to this problem and say that uh, God's, uh, God's will uh, 
is identical to God himself. And God's act of will is necessary uh, in that sense. But uh, considered as relating to something outside of God, then it's not a necessary uh, then it's not a necessary act of will because then you describe God's act of will in a relational way. You describe it in a relation to something outside of God, namely creation. And uh, I think that something like that, we must think in some some terms like that if we're to solve this, this, this problem. I don't know if that, that was, uh, a satisfactory answer. I, I could elaborate. I see that Gavin wants to weigh in on this, I think. Okay. And I mean, to, to pose a question to you please. about that. Oh, please. Yeah. So, Matt said, thank you for, for that response there. Maybe if I could just come back on that. So, it, it seems that the, the solution that you're um, providing there is the traditional Thomistic one against uh, that, the, the Avicennian emanation doctrine that given God's necessity and goodness, God cannot but. Um, create and the traditional Thomist response is to distinguish the kind of relation God has to creatures and the kind of relation creatures have to God. That God has no real relation to creatures, but creatures have a real relation to God. Um, my worry is that give, given kind of what we chatted about earlier and given the, the engagement with theistic personalists, my worry that is that that sort of solution uh, of the mixed relation isn't available if we think about God's necessity in terms of possible worlds. And, and why not? Why, why not? Because it would mean that um, those relations would be the same in every possible world because God exists in every possible world. So every possible world would look the same and there would be no difference in any possible world. But I think here we, we come back to this, this uh, issue of what explanation means, if, if an explanation must entail what is to be explained. Uh, because suppose that uh, it's fitting for God to, it's, it's an objective truth that it's fitting for God to create. And that's a necessary truth, that's part of God's mind, so to speak. And then God also have free will, and, and he necessarily has free will. So every, everything is, is identical to God's essence, his, the appropriateness of his act of, of, of creation and his free will. These are necessary features that God has in all possible worlds. And those features can explain why God creates, but they don't entail that God creates. So in some possible worlds, uh, there is no creation, even though God is the same, so to speak. God is the same in all possible worlds. So I think something like that, you must, you, you must work with something, some um, view of, of uh, explanation that, that allows this kind of, of uh, scenario. Or how, um, how, else, how else would you, would you want to ju just reject the, the idea of, of comparing possible worlds or, or what's, what would your response be? Oh, I, I certainly would reject the idea of comparing possible worlds seems to me if God has that logical relation to creatures in this world and that God exists in all possible worlds, then that logical relation has to exist with him in all possible worlds, in, in which case creation is inevitable in all possible worlds and you have modal collapse. No, I don't see I don't see why. If if you can if you if you don't if you don't see causality as necessarily deterministic that given certain certain uh, Pre preconditions the effect must follow 
you mm. can see and free will is an example i mean free will causality based on free will is an example mm. of where you can have the same if you interpret free will in a libertarian way you can mm. have the same the same uh, initial conditions and you can have two different outcomes mm. different possible worlds i suppose maybe we, we're hitting our time but I, i would like to come back to this but uh, let somebody else come in okay thanks thank you so, uh, and I didn't actually see your response to me until just now, but I'll read it afterwards. So if I think what, uh, in response, this is Jonathan Lenin to, to my other question, I think what you were saying was that um, causes in your, uh, as, you, as you define them, don't have to be deterministic. They can be stochastic in some way, and yet there's still um, a cause that ultimately itself would have a cause, would be, um, you know, whatever uh, essentially uh, de defines the uh, quantum mechanical system or, you know, the magnitude of the uh, uncertainty and the uncertainty principle or whatever. In other words, from a, from a logical point of view, it's not important that the cause be random rather than deterministic. Is that a fair way to characterize the analogy you were giving between lung cancer and smoking, for example? I think so, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thomas Davenport, who is a physicist, seems to want to weigh in here. What do you, Thomas? Well, I'm sorry, I was, I was trying to send a private message to Jonathan. I don't think he realized it, so that's my fault. But <laughs> no, I, the specific example he brings up of quantum of, of degeneracy pressure, I, the, the, I think there's a way in which it's um, there's there's still a way in which you're talking about the mutual interaction of various things, and so we have to think deeply about what we mean about. Um, yeah, I think there's still a way you can talk about a causal structure there, even if it's maybe not the way we might sort of think about causes in the classical sense of this thing pushing on this thing explicitly. But that's a, a we can talk about that later. Thank you very much.